Have you heard of Raise Them Well? It's our company that we started back when I was pregnant with our second son, Hutch, and we couldn't find the supplements and the trustworthy products that we were really looking for for our own family. And so Wiggy and I decided to create our own and Raise Them Well was born. We provide a lot of different products, including vitamins and supplements for your children, really great magnesium products, prenatal vitamins, and more. So make sure you check out RaiseThemWell.com for all of those offerings, especially if you're looking to clean up your family's products in the new year and maybe just get a little bit crunchy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily mm. here along with Dr. Wiggy today, and we are back to COVID. So it seems to never go away. And I mean, I think we kind of knew from the beginning that this was probably something we were going to have to live with for a while or forever. But um, there are many questions swirling around. We get a lot of questions from friends and acquaintances and the general public on our various platforms. And, you know, I know that our citizens really just want some reliable information and understanding from people that are actually practicing and treating COVID on a daily basis. And so Wiggy is here with me today, and we're just going to kind of talk through some of the updates that we know since we last talked about COVID, which I think was when Omicron was first coming Mm -hmm. on the horizon. And, you know, we kind of thought we knew what was going on, but not necessarily had, had really experienced it personally yet, right? So let's just start there. Okay, so it's been about a month, I think, Mm. since we last talked about COVID specific to what's going on just in general. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing, trends, anything that's changed. Sure. So I think it's important for us to keep talking about this. And, you know, hopefully at some point we will be able to transition to other topics. But for now, it's still so front and center and it's also changing so rapidly. So I think, you know, doing these monthly check ins is is really important. Uh, we have seen some shifts here over the past month, uh, but we've seen really what's been most uh, most obvious is just how prevalent it is mm-hmm. right now. I mean, it, it is it is everywhere at this point, and it seems to be spreading really, really rapidly. And I think you're, you're probably, if anyone's keeping track of the, the cases or, or the mm-hmm. surge, we are definitely in the middle of a huge wave uh, right now, and it, it's it's all over the place. So what we're seeing clinically is that we are seeing, I think, a combination of Delta and Omicron and potentially even other variants. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's probably tough for us to necessarily identify every s- single variant that is going to be circulating because viruses mutate. That's what happens. Right. And there probably are variants of the variant. Well, and just a note on that. It's impossible for us to know mm-hmm. when they're testing so few people right. for what variant. I mean, I don't even know how they do that. I don't know anyone that ever, personally, I don't know anyone of all of the people I know that have had COVID that their test told them what variant they sure. had. Yeah. So we don't really know that. No, no, <laughs> you really don't. And so what I'm seeing is that I am seeing kind of two different sides of this. We are still seeing plenty of cases that are dealing with severe illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd actually say in some ways we're seeing more of that uh-huh. uh, for certain individuals. And then we're also seeing the other side, which is a lot milder cases. 
um, which is which is kind of interesting because we're seeing we're seeing both both sides of it. And you're right; it's tough to know one which variant it is. It's also tough to know how sick someone is going to get, regardless uh, of the variant, because sometimes symptoms start off mild and they r remain mild. Sometimes they start off mild and then they get they get real severe. Right. And so it's a really tricky time because you don't want to overtreat, you know, if if you don't have to. But you also don't want to undertreat and miss something, especially if it does develop into some more advanced disease. And so it is it is challenging time. It's been very, very busy. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think last time I can't remember if we did an update probably over Christmas, but uh, really since then, it's just been kind of nonstop. We've mm -hmm. had tons of tons of calls, tons of messages, tons of patients that we've treated. And so it's been exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's been really, really hard past right. couple of weeks. Well, and I mean, let's talk about that because here's the biggest problem. So if you don't know this already, Wiggy and I, um, we're, especially me, because I get to be the network director for the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom. And so I'm talking to the few, probably my estimate is there's 100 doctors, maybe a little bit more or less. In North Carolina. In North Carolina, yeah. not in the not in the United States, who are actually treating COVID and everyone has their flavor of that and this this discussion is not about that. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them is bombarded because there aren't enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course we all know that the methods of early treatment, some of them have been completely vilified. And others have that are just logical for treating a virus mm -hmm. are still not being prescribed. And, you know, we need to, as a culture, keep asking those questions why we, you know, I have my ideas and mm -hmm. hypotheses, but there's been a lot of pressure and a lot of, you know, the medical community in general, I think there's a lot of burnout happening and sure. for many reasons, right? Sure. There's so many reasons why that's happening. Um, but then when you add on the the weight, the shouldering of so few providers yeah. treating so many people, which obviously or not everyone is getting treated, but there's just so few right. in the in the in the long run. And you know, the results speak for themselves in my opinion, but well maybe we'll dig into that in a few yeah, minutes. I, but. I mean I think a hundred is probably a little generous as far as the number of physicians that are actively treating. I think there may be a hundred that will treat if they have a family member or somebody that get, that gets sick right. or will coordinate with somebody else that um, to to get them treatment. I think it's probably lower than that. Maybe you know, so. Dr. McCullough he he mentioned throws out the number five hundred uh, providers that are treating across the nation, mm -hmm. uh, which would only be ten per state. Right. So I, I'm not sure what the actual number is, but yeah, it it does feel like the the load is is heavy. Uh, especially for the people that are trying to do their best to take care of the patients that are, that are reaching out to them. And yeah, this wave has been been terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been such a fast and furious number of people that, that, are, that are getting sick. Now, in some ways, if this wave does continue to spread as quickly as it does, uh, it's, it will continue to be a, a stressor on the healthcare system. But in, in other ways, this actually could be potentially a way out of this. Mm -hmm. 
because if an, I do believe if enough people have natural immunity to this, mm -hmm. and especially if we're dealing with, hopefully with Omicron, with milder disease, milder right. cases, that people are going to be naturally immune. And I think that we are seeing more and more research to say that natural immunity is going to be more, more robust, right. longer lasting. Now, we are seeing that this is another uh, thing to consider, that we are seeing whatever, whatever variants are floating around right now, it does appear that it breaks through not only vaccination, but also does tend to break through natural immunity. Mm -hmm. I think we are saying that you can get this multiple times. Mm -hmm. That's also been up for debate, whether or not you can get COVID twice. Right. I've kind of always said all along, I believe that you can. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're seeing that much more clearly now over right. the past couple of weeks. And, and am I correct that it seems that um, when, you know, that first infection for most people is generally the most severe, mm -hmm. And then symptoms are usually very minimal in subsequent cases. If you were, for example, if you had the original variant back in a year ago or whenever, or who knows what variant it was. If you had COVID a year ago, you know, you probably had more significant symptoms than if you have mm -hmm. Omicron or whatever it is that's happening now. A lot of times there's those minimal symptoms like sore throat, runny nose, a couple of days of feeling not too great, but kind of just like a common cold is what I'm hearing most well, just anecdotally. It's definitely milder than the original time that they got, at least what I've seen. Right. That people have had it twice. Uh, and one thing we, we are seeing is is not necessarily, you know, just a one or two days of illness, but we're not seeing any severe illness. Mm hmm that's that's the difference I think that we're seeing with natural immunity is that people that have had this before and they're getting it again is that it is still unpleasant right but we're not seeing we're not seeing hospitalizations mm -hmm. uh, we're not seeing really severe uh, cases or decreased oxygenation or any sort of you know really advanced problems with it so that that is one thing I, again it's still a pain to, mm -hmm. to, to get it sure. and, and to deal with it, but it doesn't appear to be real, real serious for, for secondary, second cases. Right. Well, and I think that we're at the point now where I know personally, I know of and have heard of many people who are getting sick, who have had two doses and a mm -hmm. booster. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot yeah. of breakthrough infections. Well, that's, that's clear now is that, mm -hmm. you know, and I think we've also been saying this for a while is that the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting it. Right. And it also doesn't prevent you from spreading it. I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. pretty well established at this point. But I will say, uh, kind of like natural immunity, that there does appear to be some decreased severity right. uh, with the vaccine. So we've, we've, I've seen, I've treated plenty of people mm -hmm. that have had the vaccine and plenty of people that have had the booster. So we're definitely seeing cases. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, there's no, there's no debate about that. Are the cases milder than they than they would have been without the vaccine? I think they probably are. Mm -hmm. I mean, they probably are milder. I think people are generally able to fight it off a little bit, uh, a little bit easier. Uh, is it comparable to natural immunity? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I think natural immunity. I'm seeing very clear milder cases. Uh, vaccinated cases probably also fairly comparable. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's tough. To, it's really tough to say because we're also in this mix now where we're seeing again Delta, we're seeing Omicron, and I think, we're, and I believe we're seeing other, other variants that right. we haven't even identified. And so it's tough to compare apples to apples because, mm -hmm. you know, one, one case that's uh, natural immunity, they got Delta, 
may be really mild. And then there's another case that is vaccinated. They got Omicron that was really mild. Does that mean that they're right. equivalent? You really can't compare it. But I just I do believe that overall, the severity for those two populations is actually is actually not that bad. Mm -hmm. Well, and and we still are hearing a lot and we see these graphics all the time that, in my opinion, are fear mongling. But that's my opinion that you know, everyone that's in the ICU and hospitalized is unvaccinated still. And what we're hearing, and this is this is just word of mouth from providers that are admitting people to the hospital that are dealing with this on a daily basis, is that, yes, there are still more unvaccinated people being admitted to the hospital and in the ICUs. However, that is shifting somewhat rapidly is what we're seeing that it used to be, you know, a few months ago that it seemed that many people, at, at least from the data that we got, and I would argue that in the United States, our data is terrible. And in yeah. North Carolina, where we live, I'd say it's even worse. Um, <clears throat> and so what we were seeing, what we do know, does seem to be shifting pretty dramatically when you look at the overall numbers. And so I think, and, and I, my point in saying that is not like, you know, we don't want to get in a vaccine debate. Wiggy has one-on-one -on -one conversations mm -hmm. with his patients to help them make that risk-benefit analysis. I do think that the, the thing that we do want to convey is that everyone needs to be prepared that they are probably going to get a variant of COVID regardless of vaccination status. Mm -hmm. And don't be surprised if you have natural immunity if you have if you have a second case at this sure. point we're seeing a lot of that and so that's one message that i've been trying to share with people to say you know are are you prepared are you taking care of your body are you taking your supplements do you have these things that are over the counter mm -hmm. on hand for when it happens because it's very likely to happen at some point yeah well i think it's very likely to happen at some point probably in the kind of near future mm -hmm. that you know that there are things circulating that can break through, natural immunity can break through vaccines. And then I also believe it's this is going to be one of those things that's probably going to continue to circulate around the world every year. Yeah. And it's going to be it's going to it's going to change, it's going to mutate and there're going to be different different variants that are going to be circulating every year. And that's where you know how we handle that I think is going to is is a big public health Mm -hmm. policy discussion because I don't believe this is just going to go away. I wish I wish that it would, but right. I don't believe it's just going to go away and we're never going to see any variants again. Mm -hmm. um, and so, because really the options will be for for everybody, the options will be either you trust your natural immunity, mm -hmm. uh, that either you've already had it and you trust that you can beat it again, or you're probably going to have to do something like a flu shot mm -hmm. where every six months to every year, there will be these new variants that we're predicting is going to be kind of floating around coming up. And this will be the type of shot that you have to do in order to kind of protect yourself. Right. Now, if it ends up being like the flu shot, the flu shot is actually is not great for predicting. Right. What strains are coming. And, and so it's some kind years, of hard to. Am I correct that some years the data will show negative efficacy with the with the flu vaccine as well? Uh, I don't think there's ever really been a negative efficacy with with the flu shot, but there is there is like I so said there's a there's a missing the mark mm -hmm. where like well we think these are going to be the the strains coming around this right. year, but it's actually some some completely different ones, so it just doesn't really 
doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Now you bring up the the concept of negative efficacy. This is an, an interesting interesting concept to talk about because there is some data to show potentially with uh, especially as you go out from the vaccine, mm-hmm. the longer you go out from it, right, that you may actually have a higher risk of getting COVID. Right. Not higher risk of getting a severe case of it, mm-hmm. but a higher risk of getting it, which is interesting because... And, and that also goes up with boosters. So, the from what I understand, is that it really has more to do with the timing of it. Mm. That if you had, you know, two shots, and then six months later, you're in a negative efficacy okay. category for getting it. Gotcha. And so I think the booster, what we're likely seeing is that the booster kind of resets it a little mm-hmm. bit. So it kind of resets, resets it where you may have a little protection of getting it for a short period of time. But then the farther out you get from that, we're actually seeing, again, it's starting to flip to be where you're more likely actually to get to get it. Right. And so that's, that's the term that's being used now is the negative efficacy for preventing cases. Mm-hmm where we're still seeing probably positive efficacy for preventing severe cases. Right. Well, and I mean, and of course the elephant in the room is how much mRNA vaccine that we're still studying is safe to keep injecting in our bodies every six months. Right. So and, that's, right. That's another, and we don't know that. Right. Another great question. So yeah, we, we do know, again, based on the data that there appears to be some protection, right? But we, but it basically every time you booster, which we're, you know, there are countries that are doing for the fourth shot now. You know, like Israel, that's that's where they're moving into the fourth shot, other mm-hmm. countries as well. And every time you do a booster, especially with the mRNA vaccines, you're basically resetting the clock for saying, okay, now what problems are we going to have from this point forward? Mm-hmm. And so that, so that there's going to be studies for a long time to try to figure out risk-benefit ratio mm-hmm. for a lot of different populations. And especially, again, with consistent boostering, what does that, what does that risk-benefit ratio fall after... X number of months mm-hmm. after X number of boosters, like there's going to be a really complicated probably formula to try to figure out for each individual what makes the most sense. Does it make sense to keep doing a shot every year or does it make sense to, like I said, trust your natural immunity? I think that's where where it does have to be an individual decision because there's not going to be a one size fits all. Yeah. Well, and, and arguably we're making our data way more complicated because we're encouraging people to mix and match, mm. match vaccines. Right. So... You know, I don't, I, I've not done all that um, math as far as how many different combinations we might have, but how are we going to know the most effective mm. combination? How are we going to know the most risky combinations? How are we, we, we aren't because we're not really collecting that data well, from my understanding. The, we won't really know the data very well in the United States. Right. Our data collection is so bad. Right. It's really bad as far as looking at, uh, hospitalizations, looking at uh, side effects, looking at injuries. We just don't collect that data when we should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, it's, not that, it's not that hard to do it. There are, there are other countries that are doing it well. Right. And they're collecting the data. And we have much more reliable information to go off of. But that's why I think some people are confused. They're like, well, we're seeing these numbers here. Why is it so different than Israel and so different than Germany and so different than the UK? Mm-hmm. Why is it so different than Japan? You know, they, they're, it, it, you can't really compare them because the data collection is not the same. Right. There, yeah. We have very limited reliable data. I mean, 
you know, what the CDC provides has many holes in it and they don't strip it down to all the categories that we would all love to see that would help us figure some of these things out, unfortunately. Right. Um, So, yeah, I'd say if if you're into research, which I think we all need to be as as much as we can, looking at the data out of the U.S. is probably not the best data to look at. mm -hmm. I'd say looking at the data out of places that really do a consistent job recording things and measuring, like the U.K. actually does a good job. Uh, Israel does a good job with their data. So we have a lot more information from them with uh, comparing you know, vaccine rates, comparing natural immunity, and, and seeing which ones seem to fare better. You kind of have to branch out away from, from mm-hmm. what the, uh, the CDC or other agencies are presenting because it's just, not, it's just not very robust data. Right. Well, and arguably even the VAR system, it's, it's complicated, it's clunky, it's difficult, and... Even in a room full of providers who are very concerned about what's going on, when you ask who's reported to VAERS, very few hands go up, even though every single person in that room has told me they've seen vaccine mm, injuries. True. So there's that. And, you know, so we, we really just we really just don't know. And I think yeah. the best posture for us to have as citizens and as parents making decisions and for ourselves and for our loved ones is that we have to have that to say we don't know so we have to keep asking questions and considering the risks and not just you know factoid tidbits that we see in the media because those are not reliable sources most of the time especially when something is you know something really complicated is boiled down to a quick headline or a paragraph that never tells us the whole picture. Mm-hmm. So it's important to to learn to do that. Another thing that because we have such terrible data in the United States, um, one of the things that is has recently um, been been looked at is the excess death numbers mm-hmm. that we've had over the last year. And I, I, I am not a scientist by any means, but when you look at the data, of when our excess deaths happened in different age groups, it's fascinating how it correlates with when those populations were getting vaccinated. And this goes back into to 2021, of course. Mm-hmm. So, for example, early in the year when we were only vaccinating older people as well as healthcare workers and that kind of thing, older people had excess deaths more quickly. As we moved into younger populations one by one, it correlates every time. Now, am I saying that there's a definite causation there? No. But would it make sense for us to look into that a little further? Yeah. Because this does seem to correlate, and it's a pretty big number. Right. I would say absolutely. So. Well, that yeah, so that is one data point that is actually pretty easy to monitor, right, mm-hmm. is, is, is excess deaths. You know, we're able to record that pretty consistently because you can't really uh, – Fudge those numbers. Those numbers are, are they are what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be interesting, and maybe we can do this with uh, our friend Dr. Dave K. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe have him come come back and talk about the excess death uh, rates mm-hmm. because uh, he's done a lot of research on that, and so he he probably has a better grasp of the numbers right. uh, than than either of us do. But I do think that is a that is a really important number to consider when we're looking at how we responded. Mm-hmm. Uh, how everything that we did with the pandemic did it actually have net benefit right or or net harm 
And I think that's, again, it's tough to say, but we can compare our data with how things were, were done with other countries and how things were done and to see what the, what the net is. Mm-hmm. I think the concern is, is that we're, we are seeing a, a very large increase in excess mortality and excess deaths. Mm-hmm. And it seems to actually uh, outnumber just what COVID deaths are. Right. And we're seeing a, a bigger, a big, big chunk that is just from some from other reasons mm-hmm. that we don't have a, a good explanation for why. And so that those are the questions we should be asking is why is there this many number of excess deaths in all these different age groups mm-hmm. when COVID can only attribute so many to that. Right. And so I think that that's a, that's a really good question because if the if the net the net matters. Mm-hmm. You know, even I think that, that really that's really important to know if if everything like um, considering other things like drug overdoses, mm-hmm. suicides, um, alcoholism, uh, so many things, so many cardiovascular deaths, mm-hmm. cancer deaths for people not receiving care, mm-hmm. you know, all those things that they, they lump together into this excess death mor- mortality. And that would give us a better idea again is what, it, when, or if we ever have to do this again, right. what is the, what is the appropriate response to it? And so it's it's uh it is interesting to look at it from that angle. Sure. And I think, you know, that's taking responsibility and considering the fact on every level from those that are our leaders down to individual providers and, you know, in every area from um mental health experts to physicians like you, mm-hmm. you know, we all having this data and collaborating together can really help us to figure out what do we do right? What do we do wrong? When this happens again, because we will have more pandemics, what can we do differently to help balance the risk while not decreasing that net, like you mentioned? So um, that's a really important consideration. And I mean, the the thing is, I I do think there's a lot more data coming out or or I should there are peop- there is a lot more finally being shared by even our leaders in the United States about mm-hmm. most people that die from COVID have four comorbidities or more, mm-hmm. not with COVID. And, you know, our own CDC director is saying it'd be, we need to have better data on that. Well, we would agree right. that we, we need to know those things. So so some of that is is beginning to be considered, but we need to keep boiling it down more and more so that we are better prepared as citizens, as leaders, as providers, and for what the next health crisis might be, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we, we need to look at this as a opportunity to, to do things better. Yeah. In lots of different ways. And I think, I think one of my concerns right now is that while these numbers are spiking, it does seem that we're doubling down on all the same things mm. and the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Right. I forget who said that, but it's a pretty good quote. So I think we have to consider is more masking, even with these different masks that maybe are better a little bit if worn right all the time, is that actually going to help? Mm. Is 
continuing to tell every single person from every dis- different risk group to go get vaccinated, is that actually going to help? Yeah. Like, where are, have our results gotten us so far? Once again, I'm not saying that vaccines don't reduce severity of disease for some people, but we need to start making different decisions and becoming more comfortable with what is the end game with this and when are we going to start learning how to live again in a big picture society and you know stop everything surrounding fear and 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 change some of these protocols within our schools that are hurting kids still when they can't go to school for sometimes like 20 some days Mm. there's no way that that's serving that very vulnerable population well but it seems like we from a big picture a lot of this just gets doubled down rather than using what we're beginning to know and make better decisions because mm-hmm. i feel like the data and the policies don't match sure well i think that really in a lot of ways comes down to to pride and i would say intellectual honesty because if you're doing something that doesn't work you need to admit that it's not working and you and you come to you know some different conclusion uh, because yeah if you are just seeing where what you are doing isn't working then you we need to we need to shift we need to shift course and that's part of what what medicine is so when we are especially when we're talking about things like early treatment mm-hmm. what what we're doing if it's working you know we kind of stay the course and we, we we keep doing that but we are constantly reading and learning and trying to figure out, well, what, what else is there available if we need it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Delta. Delta was hard. Mm-hmm. Delta was harder to treat. So we had to do things differently. We had to adjust our regimen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not drastically, but, but we did. Right. Uh, and Omicron will probably, if it becomes the primarily dominant variant, mm-hmm. we'll probably adjust it down. Yeah. Because we probably don't need to be as aggressive right. uh, on, on our treatment. And so that's where we need to be agile. We need to be changing things. Yeah. We can't just be stuck in this one tunnel view mindset that this is, these these are the only options, mm-hmm. and just doing the same song sheet, mm-hmm. you know, every time. Right. I'd, I'd say the other thing is, and one thing that I love is within this network that we have, it's very collaborative, because the few that we have are working together in some ways. Everyone has a little bit different flavor, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. But the protocols are very similar. The results are very similar. And, you know, I love that all of our providers, and they come everywhere from naturopaths to emergency medicine doctors and inpatient, are collaboratively considering, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Like, I do understand that mechanism. That really, you know, and... It's that professional discourse that makes everybody better. Right. When you're showing respect, you're already honoring what the person is doing because they're doing something. Right. And and getting great results. And so I get to sit back and watch that happen and say, wow, this is how it really should be on a larger scale because this works really well and helping everybody learn and grow and yep. refine and and shift to what's now happening and what everyone's seeing. And so to me, that's really encouraging, but I think we need to ask ourselves, why doesn't that happen on a larger scale? 
still, why are we not collaborating, collaborating on a national level, bringing in people that are seeing things all different ways and helping to shape what those policies might look like rather than leaving just a couple of people to make all those decisions? Well, I think part of it is it's, it's just not encouraged and it's generally not encouraged the bigger of an organization you're part of. Mm -hmm. It's really not encouraged to have this kind of network effect where you try to work with other positions and try to figure out, you know, what's working well and what's not working well. Generally, the, the bigger medicine becomes, the more one size fits all it becomes. Mm. Uh, and I think the smaller independent uh, providers that are, you know, on the front lines and trying to work together, those are the ones that are, are collaborating more. And I think there is this more of a we're in this together mindset. It's like, okay, what's what's working well for you? What isn't working well? Mm -hmm. What have you seen mm -hmm. change? And so so it does help us to make sure that we're staying on top of things. Right. But also make sure it also helps us to make sure that we're on the right track. Mm -hmm. Because if we are all reaching similar protocols, which we've all reached pretty similar protocols, mm -hmm. everyone that we've we've talked to, it's 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 not nothing night and day. Right. There may be some, you know, 10 degree shift shift here and there, but overall we're really pretty much the same. And if we're also getting very similar outcomes. Right. Because if we can add up, you know, all of the providers that, that we are that we've talked to, you know, we're in the thousands of patients that have been treated. When, oh when you add many up many thousands, I yeah. would say. No, yeah, I say multiple thousands. Oh, for sure. And Easily. Probably probably tens of thousands. Maybe I don't know, maybe we're that high. I mean, and the numbers I know. Maybe yeah. we're that high. But I know we're, 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 we have high numbers now and we're, and when, and the higher the numbers you do, the more power there is to, to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you say, this is how many have been treated. This is how many people have been hospitalized. This is how many people have not died. And it kind of gives them some confirmation that what you're doing is, is actually, is actually helping. And, and I wish that there was more of that discussion. Mm -hmm. I think we mentioned that I think there could be potentially, uh, a positive shift out of this mm -hmm. is that a lot of doctors are feeling really constrained as far as what they're able to do and what they're able to prescribe and mm -hmm. and even how they're able to talk talk and <laughs> have conversations with patients right and so there may be this shift more towards this you know smaller practices private practices individual providers uh, but have kind of this this network right you know in some ways kind of like homeschooling yeah there's kind of this transition for a lot of families out of the public school system into this you know mm -hmm. kind of homeschool system but they're actually really well networked right and they, they're really they well co-op together right, right. Mm -hmm. and it's like hey what's working for you what's mm -hmm. what's not working for you mm -hmm. and i think it's really been very very uh it's been good to see people work together so so yeah. well from that right it has it has. And and I mean, when you're a when you're a physician and you worked really hard for a long time to become a physician to because you're smart and you can make, you know, generally you're it used to be that you're a great critical thinker, you think through things, you make all these considerations, and then you're told that if you simply say a word that you're going to be fired, mm. which we've heard we've heard that and it's happened. Yeah, if you say a word, you're going to be that's that specific thing has been said to multiple providers and some of them have been fired yeah. or you know many of them have left on their own and are in the process right now of building new things but that's concerning when you can't say a word after all those years of training mm. right right anyway 
Um, I wanted to end on a good note, but that's the reality. But I do think that the encouraging thing right now is that we are seeing things shift. And I think it's important that we pay attention to the language and that's being shared on a larger scale and really dive into what does that actually mean. Mm. So anyway, thank you guys so much for joining us. That's our January COVID update. And we'll catch up with you next time.